0: Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Today, our conversation will be focused on the current macroeconomic environment, a very timely conversation in light of the recent Fed meeting. I do have the pleasure of being joined today by Evan Brown, head of multi-asset strategy, as well as Andrea Fisher, head of investment solutions specialists for the Americas with UBS Asset Management. As a quick reminder, Evan Brown's intellectual capital drives the asset asset allocations across many of UBS Asset Management's portfolios, including the popular UBS Multi-Asset Portfolios, or the MAPS. And as part of the Multi-Asset Solutions team, Andrea works very closely with Evan in helping to deliver those capabilities to institutional and private clients. As always, it's great to hear what our partners in asset management are focused on and thinking about. With that said, Andrea, let me pass it over to you to kick off today's conversation.
1: Oh, thank you, Dan. Good morning, everyone. Um, I know I'm speaking on behalf of Evan and I when I say we're both really excited to be on the show today, and it's, it's great timing. So having Evan and his broader macro strategy team driving the views across our investment portfolios, and we manage more than $140 billion in assets under management, is really a tremendous resource, um, not only for our business, but for our clients as well. So I'm happy to have this forum this morning to deliver some of his recent insights um, to those listening. So without um, further ado, Evan, let's jump into some of the questions. So I want to focus today on what we're really hearing from clients and what is top of mind. So that's, that's obviously, that's the Fed, it's U.S. monetary policy, the impact and outlook of fiscal policy right now, if there's any bubbles in financial markets. Um, and the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, uh, and where we see the best opportunities. But let's start with the Fed. Um, We just had a big meeting wrap-up yesterday. The FOMC concluded their two-day meeting, and they published their latest quarterly projections. After reviewing those projections and hearing from Chairman Powell yesterday, what's your take on the latest guidance from the Fed?
2: Yeah, thanks, Andrea. And I, I'd, I'd say it was a very important meeting, given that the market, namely the the short term interest rate market, has really been testing the Fed's new strategic framework. So, uh, if you remember last year, the Fed um, for the first time said that they want to not only see consistent inflation near their near their target of two percent but also make up for uh, previous shortfalls of inflation by guiding a bit of an inflation overshoot, a little bit over 2%. And the the challenge for the Fed in its communication is there's no doubt that we're seeing uh, the outlook for the economy is, is spectacular. As we reopen and as we have this enormous, fiscal stimulus happening here, there's going to be a surge in in growth. And the Fed, like all of us, are getting increasingly bullish about the economy. But the Fed's challenge is saying, okay, they want to communicate that bullishness, but they also want to say, hold on, we're not going to, just because the economy is doing well, does not mean that we're going to raise rates like we have in, in the past, preemptively. One way to, to say this is that instead of uh, reacting and moving rates based on their projections of inflation, they're going to wait for the realized outcomes. They, they're going to wait until we actually see the inflation data, uh, moving consistently towards 2% and, uh, and and enough confidence that it's going to it's going to stay there and overshoot. So, uh, so I I think the Fed meeting uh, uh, going into this market where we have seen a big move in in yields both on the short end and the long end of the curve was anchoring those expectations at least on the front end. And I think they were very successful in doing that you 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 had uh, the median expectation for rate hikes remain at zero through their forecast Horizon, which ends in 2023, even as they upgraded growth and inflation forecast. And Chair Powell's press conference was very much uh, focusing on, hey, we still have a long way to go uh, in, in in healing this economy. And it, even as we're seeing acceleration, we're a while away from seeing maximum employment. We're a while away from seeing that that inflation overshoot. So the anchor of the front end of the curve in terms of people's rate expectations over the coming years. But actually, what we're seeing continue is a steepening of the yield curve, which you know, I would argue that the Fed wants to see They the steepening of the yield curve and so seeing yields move out. Uh, move higher in the 10-year sector, 10-year uh, tenor or 30-year tenor, 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 um is a positive signal that the market thinks the Fed will ultimately be successful. That by keeping rates easier in the coming years, that they'll, they will ultimately get that, that meet their target on inflation. They will ultimately get to raise the policy rate um, higher over the over the long term, which is what they want. They want space to ease when inevitably we get our our next recession. So, you know, our mantra is is uh, you know, the market will will test the Fed. Uh, it has been testing the Fed, but ultimately the Fed will will win in the sense that it will um, meet these higher expectations for tightening with very strong guidance. That, that tightening. is not going to happen anytime soon, and uh, and that's a very supportive environment for, for risk assets, which, which we can get into.
1: Yeah, so let's – I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, let's maybe talk about inflation for a second. Um, you just mentioned the Fed's been very clear they're kind of comfortable and willing to allow um, inflation to overshoot for some time and we've seen unprecedented amount of stimulus coming from the Biden administration. Are you concerned about runaway inflation and how are we positioning for, uh, you know, higher inflation across our portfolios?
2: Yes. So, and, and Andrew, this is the the question that we probably receive most from, from clients right now. Um, Given that we've, we have seen uh, almost, $3 3, tr- Three trillion now of stimulus, if you count the the nine hundred billion passed in December, and then the one point nine trillion that that was just passed uh, and signed by the the Biden, uh, by by President Biden, the it's a lot it's a lot of stimulus, all coming at a time where vaccine uh, the vaccine rollout and therefore. Uh, the ability to kind of resume normality is also happening a lot faster than expectations. That we have this extraordinarily easy monetary policy, that we have this extraordinarily easy fiscal policy is bringing up major questions about inflation. And I would argue for the first time in years, maybe decades, that the risks are skewed to the upside in inflation as opposed to the downside. At the same time, we probably shouldn't get ahead of ourselves, because as much as we're going to get a cyclical lift by all these factors I just mentioned, there still are a lot of structural pressures putting downward pressure on on inflation. They, and in fact, you could argue they're strengthening after the COVID crisis. So one of these is. The increased, um, uh, the accelerated move towards towards technology, uh, digitization, you know, online shopping, uh, all of these things kind of move us in the direction of uh, more price competition, and so that lowering prices, and you know what is is going to be moving more and more in the direction of automation, which will limit. The, uh, the ability of, of wages to rise too, too fast and the bargaining power of labor. Um, a lot of people, too, are pointing to deglobalization and um, you know, reversal in, in demographics, people getting, getting younger that uh, in, in overall populations, that that is going to uh, create upward pressure on inflation as well. These things are very long-term. You know, There's a long-term period of globalization, a long-term um, period of de- demographics weighing on inflation. That does not reverse overnight. These are long-term stories. So, uh, so all of that together means that we don't want to get too excited when inevitably you know, the cyclical pressures of inflation over the coming months will pick up. We should all be aware of that. Uh, the, the, the base effects of inflation. So what I mean is year over year, because of COVID, inflation was so low around this time last year. And so you know, the increase in oil prices rebounded the economy this year is going to make those year over year inflation levels jump. Um, supply, initial supply constraints as we reopen economies are going to make inflation levels jump over the coming months. But we're not convinced at this point that that over the, the medium term, we're going to get that that swing to the upside. Much will depend on politics. Right. We're getting a lot of this fiscal stimulus now. But if in the November midterms, say the Republicans retake the, uh, the House of Representatives, which very possible, given very narrow majorities for the Democrats, then this fiscal stimulus is unlikely to be sustained, and you need sustained fiscal stimulus to really get uh, price levels accelerating. As you mentioned, Andrea, the, the, uh, we still want to be hedged for this scenario. Like, as I mentioned, the, the, the risks are definitely skewed to the upside, so I do think that that favors being underweight duration uh, and, and, and underweight sovereign fixed income in the current environment. I do think it's consistent as well with taking a value, uh, within equities, a value over growth stance, which we've, we've seen, uh, certainly an acceleration in that trend. We think it, 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 it has more to go. And as growth and inflation pick up, you are going to see, um, value stocks outperform, uh, growth. It's just a, uh, a, a much better picture. For you know these 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 lower valuation equities um, being able to, to take advantage of uh, higher inflation, higher yields, you know uh, yield curves, steepening. We see that very much in financials, and so um, those are kind of the the trades that we have to um, to to balance out these risks in our portfolios.
1: That's. That's very helpful, Evan. And maybe we can elaborate on this point a little bit more when we're thinking about yield curve steepening. This is good in terms of our confidence, right, and the strength of the economic recovery. Um, we're underweight duration. We've been seeing yields sharply increase this year. I mean, net-net, this is, this is bad for bond investments, right? Um, if rates continue to climb on the back of, you know, a better economic outlook, what is the investment case for holding fixed income at all at this point?
2: Yes. Uh, So this is another question that that constantly comes up with, uh, with our institutional investors and um, and private clients. The, to be honest, in a vacuum, if you're just thinking about bonds themselves, uh, they're not a particularly good investment. They're likely to have, we project them in our long-term capital market assumptions as, uh, as, as having negative returns over the coming years. The thing is, we can never look at things as investment managers in a vacuum. Um, in a broader portfolio context, uh, and in terms of diversification, bonds still very much play a role. Um, the, eventually you're going to have equities selling off again, <laughs> you know, you are going to have corrections and, and we are going to have a growth slowdown at some point. Those bonds are going to be there to protect you when, when equities inevitably sell off. Um, now economy is improving, inflation's picking up now. And so we're seeing this, this, this sell off and in, in, in bond yields. But, um, but again, bonds have not, uh, uh, have not lost their diversification potential at, uh, for, for growth slowdowns or, uh, you know, what, what is unexpected, right? No one, no one, uh, in 2019 was, was projecting a, a global pandemic. Um, but people, I think, were very grateful that they, they had sovereign bonds to, um, at least partially protect them in that in that equity sell off. So I think all in um, bonds remain valuable within a portfolio. Uh, they uh, for that diversification purpose. And by the way, you know we have a ten year yield at at one point seven five percent as of today. That entering in bonds right now uh, is a lot more attractive than it was entering bonds in the summer when there were 50 basis points of, uh, of the 10 year yield. So you do have more room now for bonds to rally than you did. Um, and, and, and you know, when, when this all kind of cools down a bit, this, this immediate growth and in inflation acceleration, there's going to be, that's going to be a nice time to rebalance, uh, into fixed income and, and hedge for the next slowdown.
1: So speaking of equities selling off, um, it's about, you know, a year ago from right now that we saw a really sharp COVID-induced sell-off. And we've seen an incredible rally um, across risk assets, across global stock markets, um, really double-digit gains in the past year. And I think you said it in the beginning, the outlook is spectacular. That's a, you know, that's a strong word. And we there is a lot of optimism in the economic recovery right now. Um, what is already priced in? Is this kind of it because we've we've seen strong double digit gains kind of where do we go from here is this Is this a bubble? Could we see a sell off in equity markets soon
2: So I do think that we when we talk about bubbles, we have to separate the kind of macro and and the micro. I would argue that there's certainly signs of excess and froth if you're looking at specific areas of the market, whether it be you know, these these meme stocks or or um, you know pricing of of, uh, of tech stocks that that have no no revenue and and uh, limited uh, use case in uh, going forward at this stage, or whether it's you know electric vehicles or green technology, which I don't think anyone questions that that's, that's going to pick up, but just the, the expectations and the valuations of those, of those, uh, of those stocks definitely seem to be moving, moving ahead of them, uh, of the underlying valuation. But when you look at an overall macro perspective and as we look at, uh, the globe, you know, it's hard to argue that there's a bubble when Japanese stocks have done nothing for 30 years and are finally breaking out to the upside. When European stocks have uh, have done nothing for 20 years and then are, are we, in our view set to break out to the upside as well, as well as areas of the of the U.S. market. Right? We talk about value versus growth. There's still room to run in in value. Uh, there's there's still even with big gains in, in energy stocks and, and financials that we've seen, these valuations were so depressed for so long that there's still plenty of catch up potential. So, um, so we, you know, so, so the bottom line is that, you know, do we see bubbles in individual areas of the market and urge caution? Yes. On a big macro level, do we think that global equity markets are in a bubble? Uh, we don't, and we think they're uniquely supported in this environment where you have very easy monetary policy and, uh, and, as I said earlier, a spectacular growth backdrop.
1: So you just touched on a really important point here, which is where the relative kind of opportunities are in certain countries, right, like Japan um, and regions like Europe that are poised um, for a little bit of recovery, if we layer that on, on what's going on with the global pandemic, I think 2020 was really about crushing the curve in terms of COVID-19 infection rates. This year is really about the acceleration in the curve of the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. And we're definitely seeing some differentiation on a country and a regional basis on how successful that rollout is being with some setbacks like Italy, right, going back into lockdown. Um, how... That backdrop and those considerations around the rollout of the vaccine and the reopening of those economies driving our relative preferences across equity markets right now.
2: Yeah, thanks, Andrew. So I I think that um, no, it definitely plays a role in our in our investment decision making, and I think it's it's well understood that uh, the UK and and US and uh, really, Israel's been the, been the standout in, uh, in getting, in getting, in, in, in seeing an accelerating vaccine deployment. Uh, a few places, including us, had a, uh, we had a slow start, uh, but really picking up now. And, uh, at, as you mentioned, Europe really, uh, having a much more difficult rollout. Japan is also, uh, you know, a month, a month or so, uh, behind and so that's going to mean a faster rebound in the U S relative to Europe and Japan. But I think what's interesting, uh, and something that's often overlooked is that is, is the sector composition of the regional indexes and also the, the global nature of where the revenues come for, uh, for, for you know, essentially export heavy, uh, uh, equity markets. So, you know, even as Europe might be somewhat behind and Japan might be somewhat behind, uh, the fact that yields are rising as they are and global growth is picking up as it is and U.S. consumers will be, uh, will be increasingly buying things. They have been and will continue to. That is actually a very positive environment for regional markets that have a lot more value, uh, that have a sector composition that is heavily weighted in banks, for example, Um, as opposed to the U.S., which is heavily weighted in technology. And as long-term yields go up, that means the discount rate on which these companies are valued long, long duration equity securities uh, that that discount rate is going up and that's going to bring the valuations of tech stocks down in the U S market is, is very heavy on, uh, on tech valuation. So I, I don't mean to suggest that this pandemic uh, you know, the, the, the speed at which we can get cases down and the speed at, at which vaccinations pick up, Uh, doesn't have an effect in, in the Europe and the, in the Germany. There's, there's clearly, um, companies that, that actively serve the, the domestic markets there. Um, but we do have to consider sector composition and it is a good environment, uh, for the sectors in, uh, and, and implicitly these, these regions that are more value heavy.
1: and i think you know maybe we should wrap it up today just thinking about what are the best opportunities i think you you've touched on value for instance um and how are we implementing them across client portfolios and then also i just ask you to maybe bounce that out with what are the risks as well
2: of course so we're very as i mentioned very very overweight to you know typical value sectors like financials um, but also broadly overweight cyclicals versus defensive. So, you know, we still have healthy positions in, say, industrials and, and in, uh, and in materials. And we are still underweight the traditional defensive sectors like utilities and, uh, and, and consumer staples. So on, on a sector basis, that's how we're positioned. As I mentioned, on a regional basis, we, we see, Certainly, some some upside in Japan and, and uh, potential for for more upside in in Europe in this environment, and, uh, the UK as well. Um, so that's broadly how we're how we're positioned. I would say the risk to that view is that that uh, is actually based on China. So China dramatically outperformed uh, last year. They they got. Um, they are able to uh, control the virus uh, a lot more easily than what we saw through most of the the Western world. And and you got a lot of stimulus in China and support for the economy, and and the economy did did well and outperformed um, the rest of the world. But now we're coming into a year where China, they're concerned about financial excess, Long-term financial stability, overheating, and the like, and they will be. The Chinese policymakers have been clear that they are going to pull back on stimulus and credit support over the course of this year. We have to remember that all of the kind of mini cycles or, or dips uh, in the economy and in markets in the in the post uh, Great Financial Crisis period, whether it was you know, 2010 to 2011, 2014 to 2015, or 2018, those were all, there was heavily heavy contribution to that slowdown coming from, from China and that, the times where China was pulling back on credit. Now, we think this time is somewhat different in the sense that China's been, policymakers have been very clear that they want to reduce that stimulus at a much slower pace uh and also you have just this enormous upside coming from uh from the western world as we get as we get the vaccination uh but it's still something there to keep a close eye on you know as as China pulls back we want to be looking very closely at that data we want to be looking very closely at commodity performance uh base metals that are very sensitive to to China's growth backdrop and uh and if that you know, if that uh, credit support and growth uh, deceleration happens more, you know, if that happens more quickly, then, you know, we may have to scale back some of our uh, enthusiasm for the, the growth and inflation outlook and, and therefore our value versus growth positions and, and uh, cyclicals over the
1: Thank you so much, Evan, for outlining some of those key opportunities and risks that we're seeing right now. So I think that wraps us up for today. Um, Evan? Thank you so much for sharing those insights uh, with our listeners. And, Dan, thanks so much for having us on the show today. Really look forward to the next conversation. Uh, just as a follow-up, for any listeners who might be interested um, in UBS asset management and our broad offerings, I encourage you to visit um, our website, which is www.ubs.com. Um, forward slash am dash us. You can also find a number of research pieces and the latest insights uh, that Evan is a key contributor in, and you can also reach out to your UBS financial advisor if you have one. So, Dan, I'll pass it back to you.
0: Okay, well, Andrea, Evan, thank you very much for your time Insights, Very timely and valuable conversation this morning. Again, we have been joined by Andrea Fisher, Head of Investment Solutions Specialists for the Americas, as well as Evan Brown, Head of Multi-Asset Strategy. The UBS Market Moves podcast channel is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. You can also visit UBS.com forward slash podcast To view the entire podcast offering. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC registered broker dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements.